0: going to be in Luke chapter 3 this morning, verses 21 through 38. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38. I'm going to start a little different than I normally do. The title of of this message, I'm going to call it Numbered with the Transgressors. Numbered with the transgressors. And I'm going to begin by telling you, I want to make a statement about this text. I'm going to, I'm going to claim that this text that we're, we're going to be in this morning is really a concise summary of human history. And I think you'll see, as I get into it, why I say that, it's a it's a concise summary of the history of the world, of the history of humanity. And uh, so I'm going to read through it, and then we'll pray. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about thirty years of age. Being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mattath, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janiah, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesley, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri. The son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Cossum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nishan, the son of Amenadab, the son of Admon, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you open up this word to us today. Lord, we just ask that you... Help us to understand the significance of what is taking place here in the life of our Lord. We ask that you help us to understand the significance of this genealogy that we're given. Lord, we just pray that you help us to see your Christ high and lifted up and your purpose. What you have done for us. to deliver us in our helpless condition. Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin the message by skipping over to Hebrews. Just keep your finger there in uh, Luke 3. And I'm going to go over to Hebrews chapter 2. we believe here that Scripture interprets Scripture, so this is not really an unusual thing to do. I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 2 and read verses 9 through 18. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death, for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise and again I will put my trust in him and again behold I and the children whom God has given me therefore since the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I'm going to reread verse 21 of Luke 3. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. When all the, all the people were baptized... Jesus was also baptized. Now, I have done a lot of study and meditating on this this week. I've listened to some really good sermons. And uh, I have so much in my head and in my heart about this that I covet your prayers (laughs) that you help me to, or that the Lord Help me. The Holy Spirit helped me to, to bring this out in a way that, that we see the glory in this. If you think about this text at all, you read this. You know, we read these things and we skip over them all the time. Because Luke states this pretty matter-of-factly. He states it pretty matter-of-factly. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And you can read that and you can just go right on. But if you're a thinking person, you're immediately going to have a problem with that. There's going to be, you're going to see a problem there because Jesus had no sin. Why were all the people baptized? They were baptized for repentance. John was calling people to repent and the baptism, John's baptism was not a, It was not like, okay, you come out here and get baptized and then now you're saved. No. His his baptism was, you come out here and repent. Hear this word, repent of your sin, put it down, lay it aside, and trust in God's provision. And this baptism is an outward display of that. It's your proclamation that, yes, I am repenting. I am putting away my sins. Well, Jesus had no sin. He had no need of repentance, but He humbled Himself to receive John's baptism of repentance. John's baptism was not Christian baptism. It was not. There are some who try to say that it is. There are some are some that will even say that it is a link. <laughs> um, some of our... Presbyterian brothers who are misinformed about baptism would say that um, John's baptism is a link between the Old Testament circumcision and then Christian baptism. That's not what it is. Christian baptism does involve repentance, and it does involve um, turning from sin and turning to God and publicly declaring that that's what you're doing, it's part of it. But Christian baptism goes much deeper than that. It goes much deeper than that. Um, Christian baptism is a burial. It's a burial. John's baptism was a washing. We're going out here and we're washing. And we're being submerged. We're being immersed, but we're doing that as a symbol of our repentance. But Christian baptism is actually a burial. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 3. The old man who was seated on the throne of our life has been crucified and he's been buried. For I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. This is why immersion is important. This is why a sprinkling is not a burial. That's not a burial. We are immersed because we're signifying that we have died. And we're buried. This self that we die to, this flesh, we have crucified it. And we're burying that thing. That thing is buried with Christ. I'm going to flip over to Romans 6. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. This is talking about Christian baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His Repentance. That's not what it says, is it? We've been baptized into his death. It's a death. And therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I hope that through this you'll begin to see a little bit of the magnitude of what Christian baptism represents, what it really represents. In in Christian baptism, when we're baptized, we are identifying with Christ. That's our public proclamation that we have died, this old person Who lived before we were born again has died and we've been born again. We have, we are alive now in Christ. He is alive in us. We were buried with Him and it's our public proclamation with that. Christian baptism is our identification with Christ. When Jesus received John's baptism, He was identifying with us. That's what he was doing. He was identifying with us. Isaiah 53, 12 tells us that he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. That doesn't just mean that he was convicted along with some other guys and and executed. That means that he was... Numbered with the transgressors. He identified with sinners. You know, just, just picture John out here at the river baptizing people. It says, when all the people were baptized. And so they come down and, and you can imagine if we had, I don't know, we've got what, 15, 17,000 people in Ada. And so, all this mass of people comes down to the river to be baptized. And so they're all lined up out here getting baptized, and they're coming through. And John is baptizing them. And you know what? He wasn't surprised to see a single one of them there. It was not. We would say, well, he had... Uh, we have uh, uh, John from... Uh, from uh, Bethel and yeah he's a adulterer and at heart and and he's here to repent of that sin or we've got Nathaniel um, from Galilee and he's here and he's a he's a drunk but he's here to repent or we've got Matthew the tax collector and he's been stealing from people and and he's here to repent. He's here to be baptized and put away his sin. John wasn't surprised by any of that. Because all of sin, all of us are sinners. But how did he react when Jesus came into the water? The line is moving along and all of a sudden John looks up and here's Jesus. How did he react? Well, let's look at Matthew 3.14. This text that we're in in Luke doesn't give us John's reaction, but Matthew does in Matthew 3.14. I'll just start in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Imagine the incongruity. Incongruity means that something just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. It's incongruous. It doesn't line up. And that's what... Happened in John's mind when he looked up and saw Jesus there, because here's a guy that doesn't need to repent, but he's here for this baptism of repentance. It's incongruous. This is a sinner's baptism, and here's here's the only one that's not a sinner, and he's here to receive this baptism. And, and John, he tries to not do it. He tries to stop it. He doesn't understand that this baptism is the reason for his whole ministry. None of the other baptisms that John performed would have meant a thing without Jesus' baptism. They would not have mattered one iota in eternity, apart from Jesus' baptism. This was the whole point of what John was doing, was Jesus' baptism. As the Messiah, the one born under the law, according to Galatians 4, 4, Jesus had to submit Himself to all God's requirements for His people, and He had to identify with those whose sins He was going to bear. He came to identify with us, to be our substitute. And His baptism was His declaration that He's come to take the sinner's place. I'll tell you who you didn't see down there. You didn't see the scribes and the Pharisees. They weren't down there getting baptized. They thought they were righteous. Righteous. But the only one that truly was righteous went down there and identified. You know what they said? They said, this mob is cursed. And they were right. This mob is under a curse. But they were too. But they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. But Jesus, the only one who wasn't under the curse, came down there and received that baptism And identified with us. So let's uh, let's kind of set the stage for this. You know, we this is one of the this is one of the proof texts that people use for the doctrine of the Trinity, um, because. It's very clear when, whenever you, you see this text, you have the Son, Jesus, you have the Father speaking from heaven, and you have the Holy Spirit descending, and you very distinctly see all three persons. Well, I want to read you something from John chapter 1, and then I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 1. You don't have to turn there because I'm just going to be very brief, but... In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. So the Son is the Creator. He is the One who brought all things into being. God the Father initiates creation. The Word, He spoke and it was. The Word, the Son is the agent of creation, and the Son brings things into being through the power of the Spirit. We go back to Genesis 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters." And then you go back to Luke chapter 3, and that's the creation. That's in the beginning. That's the beginning of creation. What we have at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here, his baptism, is we have the beginning of the new creation. And you have the Father speaking from heaven. You have the Son, the agent of the new creation, and you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. You have the creation, and then you have the new creation. The biblical imagery in what is going on here is just amazing. And it, it, if you can get a grasp on this, you can see how the Bible from beginning to end, history from beginning to end is all about Jesus. This three-year period in Jesus' life, this ministry, this is the point of everything. This is the point of all of history. And this is the beginning of the central, most important thing in history. Jesus' ministry and what he accomplished in it. And it says, while he was praying, while he was praying, Jesus is our example in prayer. He's always praying. He's always praying. And, you you know, I don't know if, if you've noticed this or not, but it's easy for me to pray when I feel communion with God, when I feel like I am in communion with God, when I feel like I am near to God, it's easy to pray. When I feel like I'm distant from God, when I feel like the heavens are closed, you know, it's kind of a self-fulfilling thing. Either way, the closer you feel to God, the more you want to talk to Him. The farther you feel from God, the less you want to talk to Him. And Jesus was always talking to His Father. He had perfect communion with His Father. Um, The Puritan Matthew Henry commented on this text. He said, what was promised to Christ, he must obtain by prayer. And in doing that, he sets the example for us. Um, Listen to what the Father says to the Son in Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm 2, verses 8 through 12, this is the father speaking to the son. He says, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. He says, ask of me, and I will give them to you. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus prayed, and then it says, and heaven was opened. Jesus prayed, and heaven was opened. When Adam sinned, heaven was closed. Jesus is the last Adam. When the first Adam sinned, heaven was closed. When Jesus came and he prayed, heaven was opened. You know, all of those statements that Jesus makes about how I'm the way, I'm the gate, I'm the door... No one comes to the Father except through me. Heaven is closed to us as children of Adam. Heaven is closed because of sin. Isaiah 59, 2 tells us the prophet is speaking to the nation, but the same thing is true of all humanity. He says, but your iniquities... Have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Heaven was closed because of sin. Heaven was opened when Jesus prayed. And through what Jesus did, through His life, through His death, heaven is open to those who are in Him. And this is why we pray in Jesus' name. And this is why we only pray in Jesus' name. The only way we can approach the Father is through the Son, the one with whom He is well pleased. He's opened heaven for His people And that's why he tells us in Matthew 7, 7, he says, Knock, and it shall be open to you. We can knock. We can ask. We can seek now because Jesus came. And he identified with us everything that we have as Christians, every blessing, every good thing that comes to us, As a result of being in Christ, we have, because of what we see here in Luke chapter 3, that He came and He was numbered with the transgressors. He came and He identified with us. In verse 22, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove, Now this does not mean that Jesus wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit before this. That's not what it's telling us. People, there are, there are some, some false doctrines that would say Jesus was just a man, see? And he comes out here and he's baptized and here comes the Holy Spirit and now he's the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah before this. He was 100% man, He was 100% God, He was God the Son, and He was the Son of God before this. And the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from both the Father and from the Son. This was not an anointing. It was a visible demonstration of fact. See, this wasn't for Jesus. This was for the witnesses. This was for all to see, for everybody watching, men, angels, devils. This was just a visible demonstration of the fact that Jesus was the anointed one. It wasn't an anointing. This was the demonstration of the fact that Jesus was the one who possessed the Spirit without measure. This is why the Holy Spirit appeared visibly and bodily, was to testify beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Christ. It's also a testimony of the Trinity, as we were just looking at a while ago. The Holy Spirit is not just some spiritual force. That's another reason why He appeared physically and bodily. The Holy Spirit is not the force. We're all you Star Wars fans, the Holy Spirit is a person with substance and form. A real person. And then a voice came out of heaven You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. You know, the Holy Spirit testified to Jesus being the Messiah by visibly descending on him in bodily form. The Father testified. To Jesus being the Messiah, by audibly, audibly announcing sonship from heaven, so you have the Holy Spirit testifying and the Father testifying, and this was fulfillment of Old Testament witness. Second Samuel seven fourteen says, "I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me." The Father speaking of the Son of Jesus. In Psalm eighty nine twenty seven he says, I also shall make him my firstborn. Isaiah forty two one says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. So what's going on here at Jesus' baptism? He's identifying with us, and He's beginning, officially, formally, His earthly ministry. And what does His earthly ministry consist of? We're seeing it. All of Jesus' ministry is summed up in what is going on here. He is identifying with us. And he is being numbered with the transgressors. He's coming down here, and he's taking our sin upon himself. Um, You know, Jesus' ministry began with baptism, and it ended with baptism, his earthly ministry. He referred to his death as his baptism. And I want you to see some of the similarities I want you to see how this baptism of John was a foreshadowing and a picture of the baptism that was going to consummate and climax Jesus' earthly ministry. So he comes down to the water. He is numbered with the transgressors. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, the spotless one comes down to receive the sinner's baptism. At the end of his ministry, his earthly ministry, he takes on our baptism, the one that we deserve. At the end of his ministry, he's baptized with unquenchable fire. That unquenchable fire baptism that we sinners have earned. Jesus was baptized with that. When he's on the cross, they're at the end, and the two thieves are up there with him, and one of them is reviling him, and the other one says, Do you not fear God? We our condemnation is just. This man has done nothing. He's done nothing. But he receives our baptism. And then, here at his water baptism, at John's baptism, it says, And heaven was opened. God rent the heavens. At his final baptism, at his death, something else was rent, wasn't it? The veil that separated, symbolically separated God and man was rent from top to bottom. Symbolic of God rending the heavens and us coming into His presence because Christ identified with us. That's the imagery. And then He comes up out of the water and the voice of the Father says, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now listen to Romans 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his Son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he comes up out of that water, he comes up out of that grave, and the Father says, Come up here. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You want to have certainty of where you're going to spend eternity? If you're in Christ, there can be no doubt, because he has identified with us Verse 23 says, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. About 30 years of age. Joseph, who was the type of Christ, was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh and began his ministry. He was a minister in the courts of Egypt. He began his ministry, and he was the deliverer. Joseph stood before Pharaoh and he began his ministry at 30 years old, and he wasn't only the deliverer of Israel, of his own people, but he delivered the people of Egypt as well. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? That's in Genesis 41:46. The Levitical priest would enter into full service in the tabernacle and later the temple at age 30. That's in Numbers chapter 4 verse 3. The prophet Ezekiel was called to ministry in his 30th year. That's in Ezekiel 1 1. David was 30 years old when he became king over Israel. 2 Samuel 5 4. So, what's the point? Is there something special about 30? Well, here's the point. These are all offices. And Jesus is the absolute eternal fulfillment of each one of these offices. They're all shadows of Jesus. That's See, it's like the baptism of John. It's a shadow of the real baptism. And... The only thing that makes it mean anything at all is that baptism of Jesus when He was baptized not in water, but unquenchable fire. And all of these examples that took on their office at 30 years old, Jesus is the fulfillment of each one. Like Joseph, He's our Deliverer. He delivers His people. Like Ezekiel, He's our prophet. He's our great high priest. He is the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. He is the priest. He's the one that makes the whole thing obsolete. The perfect has come. The shadow is no longer necessary. And He is our eternal King. He is King. He's not waiting to be King. He is King. And then Luke says... as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Well, legally, Joseph was considered to be Jesus' father, legally, because he married Mary. Of course, you know all of the, the controversy surrounding that, and uh, what the religious people thought in the day, and what they would say as a slur and a slander, Um, But Mary was, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But as was supposed, according to polite society, everybody just kind of went along with it. As was supposed, legally, Joseph would have been considered Jesus' father. And in Matthew, Matthew gives Joseph's genealogy, beginning with Abraham and going through Joseph. But Matthew's purpose is different than Luke's. Matthew's purpose was to show that Jesus was the Davidic king and that he was the descendant of Abraham, the one in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. That was Matthew's purpose. Luke's got a different purpose. Luke's purpose is to show Christ as the last Adam. That's what he's doing. He's showing us that Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. So he begins with Eli or Heli instead of with Joseph's father. Eli was not Joseph's father. Eli was Mary's father. And he goes through Mary's genealogy and he goes all the way back to Adam. Why? Why does he do that? Why does he go to Adam? What's taking place here? Adam sinned, and heaven was closed. We're separated from God. The first Adam has sinned, and all of his offspring are shut out because of that. But Jesus comes. Seventy-five generations have passed. I know you were probably wondering if I was ever going to get to the end of all those names a while ago. Seventy-five generations from the first Adam to the last. When Adam sinned, death came into the world. But the last Adam, Jesus, gives himself as the perfect substitute. I'm going to go over to Romans 5 for a second. Verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Who is the type of him who was to come? But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope that some of the glory of what baptism really is about is coming through this. This is what baptism is about. It's about death. And it's about eternal life. We were under the condemnation of death. But Jesus came. And Jesus identified with us. Let me, I'm going to go back to Isaiah 53. I quoted briefly from there a while ago, but I want to read you. There are some books in the Bible that, some chapters, Romans 8 and Isaiah 53, Ephesians 1 and 2. I mean, there are just certain places that you go in Scripture that that are mountaintops. I'm going to start reading in verse 4 of Isaiah 53. I'm wanting you to see the glory of baptism, the glory of Jesus' baptism, is his identification with us. Him being numbered with the transgressors when he had no transgression. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That's how He identified with us. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before His shears, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? So that baptism was ours. That baptism was ours. That baptism of unquenchable fire that none of us who are in Christ will undergo is because we have undergone it in Christ. We were baptized into his death. We were immersed in Christ, and he took that stroke that was due us. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. You know what the booty is that he's dividing? The portion that he's allotted, you are, if you're in Christ. You are. And why? Why is he won that portion, that booty? Because he was numbered with the transgressors. Paul talked about how. He mentioned briefly in the beginning of the the equipping hour today that one of the ways that God destroys His enemies is by making them no longer enemies. That's the way He brings glory to Himself is because He came and He changes your heart. You transgressor. You who were totally and eternally separated from Him because of your sin. And your iniquity. But he came and he came down into the water with you. And he identified with you and your sin. And then he went through your baptism. And he bore it on your behalf. No baptism means anything apart from that. He bore the sin of many. And he interceded for the transgressors. And that's why we can be reconciled to God in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth. Lord, we thank you for what you have done. It's all done. And we are the recipients of this grace of this mercy. Thank You for taking our baptism upon Yourself and identifying with us so that we can identify with You. That's the only thing that makes it possible. Lord, we thank You for Your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.